Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, an introduction to the book of 1 Samuel. Okay, we begin a study today on a series of books that were at one time a single unified work. But in our modern Christian, especially Protestant Bibles, that single unified work has become divided into four books. We're going to examine all four of them. Right? And, and the book we're going to examine first is called 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel follows it immediately, then 1, then 2 Kings. We're going to be in these books a long time. All right, probably a couple of years. And as is our usual pattern, I'm going to open our study with an introduction to try and set the boundaries, establish the context, and using a pretty broad brush, paint the landscape, and then map out the road that lays ahead of us. And all along the way, I will take us on some occasional detours to explain several of the finer nuances of Bible scholarship because these nuances have a great deal to do with how and why modern Christian doctrines were formed. And we're going to delve into some of those nuances today. So please stay focused as they're going to explain some important fundamental aspects about our study of the book of Samuel and beyond. So, beginning with the basics, let's expand a bit on my opening statement that there is a difference between the ancient Hebrew manuscripts and our modern Bibles as to the divisions of this section of the Bible. The first division performed on this extensive work was to separate it into two books, loosely called Samuel's and Samuel and Kings by our modern criteria. Now this division occurred, interestingly enough, with those translators who were based in Alexandria, Egypt. And it was part and parcel with the translation of the Hebrew Bible and into what we call today the Greek Septuagint. The usual scholarly designation for that book is the Roman numerals LXX. Now, centuries later, other Bible versions, such as the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible, adopted this same method of dividing the original large book into several books, and then around the 16th century, even the modern Hebrew Bibles accepted it. Well, upon its division into two books, they became referred to as the Books of Kingdoms. All right. And what is today called First and Second Samuel, then called Kingdoms, and then the final two books called Kings, just like they are today. Now, while the title of each book and its divisions is hardly a critical matter, we should not think of this division process as a corruption of the original because it has no effect on the content. 
But it is good to know that they were originally one large document so that we can understand that from the author's mind, this was a single, extensive, and connected history that was recorded. Thus, just because we're going to move from one book to the next in this four-book series, we shouldn't hit our mental reset button all right, when we finish one and start the next, as though the previous book is unconnected to the next one in the series. The information is all intertwined. All right? Later facts of these stories are dependent on earlier facts. And the later stories often expand on information given in the earlier stories. Now, as for the author of these books, it was not Samuel himself. Except that he certainly contributed some small portion of material for some of the opening chapters of the book of First Samuel. There's no doubt that more than one hand was involved in the creation of, these, of this four book series. And that the title of the book of Samuel wasn't named for its author but rather for its central character. Okay. Samuel died before David ruled the united Israel. And so everything in this series of four books that refers to King David, at least from about the time of his coronation, was written by somebody else. That it was edited a little bit later on, possibly be even added to, to a degree that's pretty hard to substantiate or prove. The book of First Chronicles, as a matter of fact, and chapter 29 tells us that some of the information about King David's reign comes from documents that are now lost to us. All right, and these documents were entitled, and these are actually named in Chronicles, Samuel the seer, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. In other words... The greatest portion of what we're going to examine over the next two years in Torah class. I wasn't joking about that two years, by the way. <laughs> is a compilation of various records from the eras of Samuel, King Saul, and King David as written by a number of historians. Okay. And those records were then used as a source of information by some other and later anonymous editors, plural editors, who wrote the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings as they appear today. Now, that means that just like, follow me on this, just like for the gospel writers of the New Testament, the writers of the four books of the kingdoms generally were not, so far as we know, eyewitnesses to the events that they wrote about. Or maybe they personally witnessed a little part of what they wrote about. Rather, they acted like journalists, or librarians, or documentarians who interviewed eyewitnesses or reliable people who knew the eyewitnesses, and also researched historical records. They had many historical records. 
right, that earlier historians had created. And then from all that information, they created a summary account that now appears as Holy Writ in our Bibles. Now, even though some of you have studied with me um, for a long time, perhaps, um, what I just told you maybe unnerved you a little bit. Don't let it. That most of the books of the Bible were compilations of other records, oral or written, and only sometimes were written by the namesake of the book or even by someone who was present from beginning to end of all the events described in that book, it doesn't harm their accuracy or bring suspicion upon the inspired nature of what was written. Now first understand that what I've just told you, what I'm giving you, isn't some new or modern age academic take on the creation of the various books of the Bible. What I've just explained to you was common knowledge among the Hebrews. And when we give it some thought, we can quickly imagine that it couldn't possibly have been any other way. Just as with the Torah, where a goodly portion of it takes place after Moses' death, it obviously could not have been written entirely by Moses. And the entire book of Genesis took place enormous periods of time before Moses' birth. So most of what Moses knew and wrote about the epoch of Genesis was either a direct oracle from the Lord or had been handed down by word of mouth and almost certainly what we read today is some combination of the two. Now second, since we are studying the Old Testament and there has been a certain bigotry against it, by Gentiles since about the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine and then forward. And then in a few more centuries, an outright denial that the texts were even valid any longer. There has developed over the last couple hundred years even some questioning about its veracity. And the question of its veracity is often because a major portion of many Old Testament books was written well after the fact edited and re-edited, and therefore some commentators claim that this means the information just isn't reliable as compared to, say, the New Testament. But the truth is that both Testaments are cut from the same cloth. As I mentioned, the best examples of that rather standard process of creating the books of the Bible are the New Testament Gospel accounts, which were not all written by eyewitnesses especially the synoptic Gospels. In fact, the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't even called by those names until the end of the second century or the beginning of the third. They were actually written anonymously. And only later, because there were many Gospel accounts in circulation within the early church, names were finally and a bit arbitrarily assigned to these various Gospels so that they could distinguish them one from the other. Third, it's undeniable that there are some differences in the biblical uh, accounts of this section that we call Samuel and then Kings between the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have and the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. And it's become rather traditional 
among Christian Bible researchers to say that where there are differences, the problem automatically lies with a corrupted Hebrew manuscript and that the Greek Septuagint is the more accurate. And this is not without good reason. Okay, the reality is that until not very long ago, the oldest Old Testament manuscripts known to us were written in Greek, not Hebrew. The Septuagint was written about 250 B.C. And we have copies of the Septuagint that date probably to somewhere between 50 B.C. and 150 A.D. In other words, right around the era of Christ, roughly. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had, however, were called the Masoretic Texts, and they were written about 1000 A.D., So it was certainly not unreasonable to assume that a text in whatever language that was written a full millennia before the next latest one is better and is probably closer in content to the original. Thus, the Greek Septuagint has usually been considered, at least by Gentile scholars, as the more authoritative biblical source for serious study and research. But... That theory got challenged with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. Here, finally, was a Hebrew manuscript and a few Greek manuscripts thrown in as well, by the way, of the Old Testament that was written at about the same time as the oldest Greek manuscripts that we had. And while not all the work that has been done on the Dead Sea Scrolls has been published yet, what can generally be ascertained from what has been published to this point is that there is precious little difference between the Hebrew Masoretic texts of 1000 A.D. and the Hebrew Bible scrolls discovered at Qumran going back to perhaps 100 B.C. So now we have evidence that the Septuagint is not quite as faithful to the original writings as we once thought. And that perhaps the Hebrew texts should be regarded as the best source that we currently have. And what was once thought to be corruptions in the Hebrew text may not be corruptions at all. And we're going to talk about that. Bottom line. The account of the four books originally called kingdoms, beginning with 1 Samuel, were not strikingly different in the manner of their creation than any of the other books of the Bible, including those of the New Testament. So we can trust them. Even though it's been in vogue among some modern Christian scholars to say that the books of Samuel and Kings were so corrupted that they're of little value to us. Well, let's continue our detour. Take just a few more minutes to discuss these so-called corruptions that have enchanted so many modern scholars, most of which subscribe to this newer academic disciplines of Bible research called literary criticism and textual criticism. Now, it's important that you have at least some understanding of these things. 
Okay? Otherwise, you're going to have very few answers for those who question your assertion that the former testament is as valid as the latter. Or to counter accusations from those who regularly speak of biblical textual errors. But in reality, they don't have very much to back it up. A fellow named David Sumura has done a marvelous job in correctly shooting holes in the textual corruption theories aimed at various of the Old Testament books, and especially the books of Samuel and Kings. And as with most rebuffs of this kind, common sense is at its core. Okay, rather than some esoteric academic blather all right, that's considered valid, not because there's ample evidence, but rather because the person saying it has the proper credentials and notoriety among his peers to get attention. Thus, his or her new theories are considered unassailable, despite the lack of any actual evidence. Here's the issue in a nutshell. Part of the reason that when we hold up various Bible translations and compare them and see somewhat different words, and sometimes those words can be quite different in their effect, is because the translators of these various versions came across words and phrases that were at times quite difficult to deal with and were out of the ordinary. The immediate assumption is that since our modern understanding of biblical Hebrew is so advanced that the text must have been corrupted due to misspellings, omissions, additions, and so on. And so that gave the translator license to substitute what he thought ought to have been written for what was actually there. And as Dr. Samura writes, while that has become the norm for the last two to three hundred years, and it is certainly a very easy way out of the problem, it opens a very dangerous door. And in his view, these translators are so intent on applying the rules of their favorite kind of research discipline that they tend to overlook the obvious. And they discard the simple solution. And the obvious is that at all times when converting oral speech to written words, even within the same language, we do so phonetically. That is, we use a written alphabet of letters that each indicates a certain sound as a means to record the spoken word and then later enables us to accurately recover it. Let me untangle that a little bit. Spoken language came before written language. People didn't first communicate with writing and then develop speech from looking at the letters. Okay. Pictographs were the first created were created as the first so-called alphabets, all right, um, or written form of communication. 
In other words, if the spoken word was house, then the written word was literally a drawing of a house. But in time, some languages evolved complex alphabets that were individual sounds assigned to distinctive characters that could be then strung together to form various words. Thus, pictures were replaced with a series of letters, and in time, that's how the Hebrew alphabet worked. It's the same with our English alphabet, of course. So the goal of alphabets is to combine letters that enables us to speak the word that it stands for. Okay? In order to speak it, we have to know what it sounds like, right? For instance, when I write the word Shema, a Hebrew word, I'm using the English alphabet to sound out a Hebrew word. I hear what the word sounds like in Hebrew and then use some appropriate English alphabet characters to try and approximate what that word sounds like in Hebrew. The academic term is that I'm expressing the Hebrew in phonetic English. But the problem is that everybody doesn't pronounce words the same. People from different regions, even different eras, can pronounce words from the same basic language very differently. Anybody that knows my wife knows that. In modern times, where English is spoken in many countries, the same words can sound totally different. In America, we say river. In Australia, they say riva. In America, we say schedule. In England, they say schedule. If one writes these spoken words down phonetically according to how they sound they wind up being spelled differently, even though they're intended to be the same words. Again, stay with me, we're getting to a point here. (laughs) The original purpose of an alphabet was to have a means to write down what words sound like when they're spoken. Thus, Dr. Tsamura points out a number of places in Samuel where supposedly there are scribal errors or some other types of corruptions that happened over time and says that all that's happened is that an ancient editor was writing down how the word sounded when it was spoken. But of course, since pronunciation changes with time, and changes with location, and changes with culture, and changes even with personal preference, whoever was the most recent editor and copyist of of a certain passage of scripture wrote the word or phrase down in a way that best reflected the most current pronunciation and how it sounded. 
And it wouldn't necessarily match a formal Hebrew dictionary spelling or the exact way it had been spelled by earlier writers from other areas. Thus we'll find, for instance, that some Hebrew manuscripts will add a P sound to Samson's name, making it Samson. It's not a misspelling, per se. It's not a corruption. It's simply that in a particular region, at a particular time, Samson came to be pronounced Samson. You with me? Now, complex to explain, I suppose, but it's very simple in concept. And we see this exact thing every single day of our lives, wherever we live. In whatever language we use. So while certainly there are some amount of actual scribal errors and actual textual corruptions in the book of Samuel and all the books of the Bible, every one of them for that matter, there are far fewer than claimed and the more glaring ones can usually be remedied by simply comparing a couple of old manuscripts to find the more correct spelling or the intended word. Remember, until the printing press of barely 500 years ago came about, multiple copies of documents were the result of individuals literally hand-copying the example document letter by letter, word by word, page by page. And to think that in hand-copying a book as enormous as the Bible, that there wouldn't be a copyist error here and there, well, that's just not realistic. Okay, let's get back on course. The two books that form Samuel contain the history of the continuing formation of the kingdom of God that is embodied in God's set-apart people and his nation, Israel. It tells the story of the transition from the period of the judges and includes the book of Ruth and then takes us into the period of the monarchy, that is, the kings of Israel. However, the books of Samuel end at King David. So it's left to others to record what happened from there. The time period covered in what we're going to study is about 1140 B.C. to about 1000 B.C. Maybe 140 years. Maybe a little less. In this first book of Samuel, we're going to see a progression of three major events take place, each with a rather in-depth story surrounding them. First, We're going to see the anointing of Samuel as a a new type of judge that's more akin to a prophet. Then, second, we're going to see the coronation of Saul as the first king of Israel and then, ultimately, his rejection by God. And then third, we're going to see Saul's growing conflict with David that goes hand in hand with the decline of Saul's kingdom and terminates with David eventually replacing Saul. Now from a higher view, 
what we're seeing is that the ruinous era of the judges has run its course and at least part of its divine purpose was achieved by demonstrating to the tribes of Israel that Israel and all humankind for that matter needed to be governed by a king man's sinful condition is such that we need a strong earthly authority to rule over us and keep us in line or we are guaranteed to run afoul of God's laws and commands leading to disastrous results I know this idea of a need for a king flies in the face of our American system that holds self-rule as sacrosanct but the Bible certainly does not advocate democracy as the solution. I don't want to venture too far afield, but I would like to comment that just like the rest of you, I have no interest in being ruled by a typical worldly monarch. But as long as God's rule is rejected and we prefer the rule of men, it's not that a king or some other system of government is better than a democracy. Rather, it's that just as we see now, the temptations of leadership, of wealth and power, are usually just too much for us to handle in any kind of a humanly oriented government system. All of our governing systems, as run by men, are doomed to fail eventually. The era of the judges proved that strong central rule was indispensable and that not even Israel, who had every possible advantage in having Jehovah as their God and his, his own word in their possession, not even they could withstand the evil inclinations that lurk within us all to do things our way. Self-interest, greed, and the sheer ambition of power combined for this ever-declining morality of Israel until finally God had to rescue them once again or absolute destruction was the inevitable outcome. And God's way to rescue Israel was to give them a king. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew sages have assigned the book of Samuel as well as kings to being part of what is called the former or sometimes called the early prophets. But where do we find prophets in those particular books? We don't as we typically think of the office of prophet. So we need to handle the term prophet lightly as what it amounted to from the time of Moses' death on through the book of Kings because it isn't quite in the mold of someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. The earlier concept of a prophet was not so much as a, a, a seer of the future who gives a divine vision that's not of his own accord. Nor does he give the divine prophetic vision even in his own words. But rather, he is an occasional instrument of God 
who helps to bring about God's will on earth, often in the selection and anointing of leaders. Yet we see a very steady, progressive move towards the formal office of the prophet being established as a divine seer and messenger of a direct oracle from Yehovah and its earliest beginnings were centuries before the time of Samuel and Saul and David. And interestingly, we see a pattern of prophetic warning to the people of Israel that they were headed towards a monarchy and it was all put into a pretty negative light. Thus, the books of Samuel and Kings have been a real source of heated debate among Bible scholars and theologians because on the one hand, the anointing of King Saul seems to have had its origin in the wanton and wicked behavior of the people of Israel who insisted on having a king like their neighbors. And God reluctantly gave them that king. But on the other hand, in time, God replaces Saul with David, and God seems very pleased to do it. And King David is set up as the ideal earthly leader for his people, a leader that Jehovah says is near to his own heart. Not only that, but God seems to move from preferring that his people not have a king to promising David that his descendants would be the royal ruling dynasty forever. See, it's this situation, along with a couple of others, that has led many Bible, modern Bible scholars to turn to literary and textual criticism to try and find the answer to God apparently doing a major about-face. Did God change his mind about a need for a king for Israel? Or have we in the scriptures merely two or more historical accounts of that period that eventually wound up in our Bibles written by two or more authors, each with their own different point of view of the same situation? Might there be an original account that was modified and then redacted on a couple of occasions, at the least, by an editor who felt the need to rationalize the seemingly negative attitude that God had at one time towards Israel having a king and then unexpectedly changed to a positive attitude about a king over Israel with the rise of David to the throne. Put another way, were people loyal to David busily at work rewriting history to validate and glorify his kingship and at the same time setting, setting up Paul as being largely illegitimate or at least without merit in order to make his demise at David's hand more palatable, palatable to the people. Now I can tell you that this line of thinking is very popular right now. But I see it as misguided and the result of an intellectually based textual and literary criticism approach to the Bible that just sets aside the bigger picture that forms this indispensable context for understanding the Word of God 
as well as for ignoring the God patterns and the God principles set down beginning back in Genesis and showing little interest in the underlying theology that's this essential thread that strings together the Bible as a pearl necklace of stories. Indeed, if one removes the spiritual element from the history of Israel and looks at it only intellectually, one has nothing more to examine yet than yet another of the hundreds of histories of nations rising and falling since the dawn of creation. Instead, in my view, what I think we see is that God has been steadily moving Israel along a path towards the ultimate king, the Messiah. And giving glimpses all along the way of Messiah's attributes and character. The Lord gave Israel a leader in Moses that bore a certain attribute of the future and ultimate leader, that of being a mediator for the people. Then the Lord gave Israel a leader in Joshua that bore another attribute of the future and ultimate leader, that of the warrior chief. During the era of the judges, the Lord demonstrated the attribute of deliverance from oppression by using various shoftim, judges, to save Israel from the never-ending litany of enemies who tried to subjugate Israel and take their land and their possessions. During the coming era of the kings that Samuel will transition Israel into, the Lord would give Israel a leader that demonstrated the attribute of ultimate central authority and how it was to be accomplished under Holy Spirit guidance over Israel if Israel would truly exist and operate as the intended kingdom of God. But if it was accomplished without paying attention to the Lord's laws and commands, the resultant kingdom would simply be another in a long list of kingdoms of men destined to fall and blow away as dust just as all the other kingdoms have down throughout the ages. In the course of examining Samuel, we're going to run headlong into some of the most fascinating events in the Bible, including the confiscating of the Ark of God by the Philistines and its subsequent return. We'll see King Saul go from being an admired and charismatic leader into a depressed and depraved psychopath. We'll watch a young David courageously fight the giant Goliath when the Israelite soldiers were too fearful to confront him and then observe the people's growing adoration of David lead to Saul becoming jealous, paranoid, and mentally unstable. As we open the Word of God to the first few verses of Samuel next week, we're going to find that the Levitical priesthood at Shiloh existed by now in name only. 
It had not been held immune from the depths of apostasy into which all of Israel had plunged during the dark era of the judges. So we find the aged and decrepit high priest Eli unable to control his thoroughly worthless sons who ate the sacrifices brought from the people right off the altar pit as though they were having a barbecue. If Israel was going to be salvaged from its current dismal state of bondage to sin and idolatry, it was going to need yet another new beginning. And it would be necessary for God to start his start right there at his own earthly sanctuary at Shiloh, Shiloh. But such a rescue could not possibly be accomplished using those same corrupt men who were currently those priest pretenders. Thus the pious Hannah, wife of the Ephraimite, Elhanah, asks God to deliver her from her humiliating barrenness and a son is born to her. Samuel. Samuel. Because she had vowed a Nazarite vow to dedicate Samuel to serve God. Once he is weaned, she takes her son to the sanctuary at Shiloh and turns him over to Eli. Hannah is apparently oblivious to the unwholesome and thoroughly degraded priesthood that now runs the place. There the Lord God of the universe calls to an innocent five-year-old, Samuel. And Samuel responds simply with, Here I am, Lord. Eli recognizes that Yehovah is electing and separating Samuel apart from all others for a special divine purpose, but he has no clue what that special purpose was. But as it turns out, it was a call to judgment upon himself and upon his sons and his whole household who had failed so miserably to properly serve God or Israel. Chapter 2 of Second First uh, of First Samuel. Chapter 2 of First Samuel is that theological feast called the song or prayer of Hannah. There we see so many of Yehovah's multiple attributes laid out simply and without compromise. It is God who does it all. That's the theme of it. It is God who does it all. It is God who saves and delivers. It is God who is so holy that nothing comes close. It is God who can regenerate a dead womb. It is God who takes life and makes life. It is God who puts men in the grave and resurrects them at His will. It is God who helps the poor and brings down the mighty. It is God who sits in judgment of everyone and everything. Samuel rises to power. And in the seventh chapter of 1 Samuel, it was time for the uneasy peace brought about by the easy compromise that Israel had with the Philistines to come to an end. Okay. The Philistines felt they had the right to lord over Israel by now. And God led Samuel to begin the process of breaking Israel free from these pagans. 
So Samuel called for the people to acknowledge their apostasy and put things right between, between them and God as step number one. The people gathered at Mizpah and Samuel as a priest offered a sacrifice. But the Philistines attacked those worshipping Hebrews as the Philistines considered the gathering to be an unlawful assembly and a provocation against them. Israel prevailed with Samuel's leadership and the question was now openly asked as to why there could still possibly be need for a king if a leader who seemed to be operating more or less in the traditional leadership role of a judge was proving so effective. By the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel, the cry for a king again arose and Samuel gave in to it. But could there be room for two leaders in Israel? How could a judge and a king operate in the same sphere? But even more, Samuel worried about what might happen to the covenant relationship between Israel and Yehovah, whereby the agreement was that God was to be Israel's king. A proposition that seemed to have been horribly violated by the people who would have it no other way than to have an earthly king just like their neighbors. With the rise of Saul, Samuel's role was going to have to change. A monarch in the person of Saul now ruled over the political matters of Israel. So Samuel would become the representative of the spiritual values of God on earth. But who, Saul or Samuel, would have preeminence? Thus we see the beginning of this king-prophet tandem formed in which a a God-designated prophet would be the king's spiritual advisor, so to speak. The prophet would be the official bearer of God's oracle to the king of Israel, and the king was not so much to obey the person of the prophet, but rather he should obey the message of God that the prophet brought to the king. Lessons for modern day Israel and we, the modern day church, abound as we move from story to story and chapter to chapter through these four action-packed books. Lessons filled with warnings that I pray will heed rather than apostasy that I fear will repeat. You're going to like the next several months, I think. Because all that you have learned up to this point is going to be very valuable in rightly understanding what you're going to learn from here on.